This is Sunrise, the who, what, when, where, why, and WTF of Florida politics. I'm Rick Flagg, reporting from Tallahassee, where the state health department reports 3,579 new cases of coronavirus. That is the lowest number of new cases reported in Florida in a single day since June. You know, Floridians have done a great job. I think that's going, going in a good direction. I, I hope it continues to do that, and then I think that will make um, this, the school year get off to, 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 to a good start. The state also reported 107 new fatalities from COVID-19 Sunday. That brings the state's death toll to at least 9,587. And at the rate we've been going, that number will exceed 10,000 in just a few days. While the casualties mount, the reopening of public schools continues, as does the lawsuit filed by the teachers union that accuses the education commissioner of violating the Constitution in his rush to reopen. He's willing to put the plaintiffs in this case and the children who are attending brick and mortar schools in potential danger just in order to get his way to open schools uh, five days a week. The Florida primary is tomorrow, but more than two and a half million of us have already cast a ballot. That includes two million who voted by mail. But there are just as many mail-in ballots that have yet to be returned. The Democratic National Convention starts today, virtually of course, and Florida Agriculture Commissioner Nikki Freed gets a chance to shine as one of the keynote speakers. Former Florida Senator Bill Nelson has kept a low profile since he was narrowly defeated by Rick Scott almost two years ago, but he's come out of retirement to defend Social Security and to tell reporters he actually misses us. Hey, all you guys in the press, I really do miss you. Some of the new ones might think that's sarcastic, but it really isn't. I really do miss you guys. I, I had such a good time, and all of our repartee uh, was uh, really uh, most instructive and enjoyable for me over uh, 42 years of elected service. We miss you too, Bill. It was nice to have a senator who didn't treat reporters like something unpleasant you have to scrape off your shoe. On today's Sunrise Soapbox, you'll hear Nelson's defense of Social Security on its anniversary and his prediction that seniors will turn on Donald Trump. We'll also have your calendar of political events and check in with a Florida man who crashed into an unmarked car containing a deputy and his canine partner. And now, the top stories on Sunrise for Monday, August 17th. Florida reported almost 3,600 new cases of COVID-19 Sunday, the lowest that number has been since June. The health department also reported 107 additional fatalities. Now, over the past week, we had 1,266 fatalities, 40,610 new COVID cases, and 3,423 hospitalizations. Now, that runs the totals to 573,000 cases in the state, 9,587 fatalities. The governor's lawyers will be sitting down with attorneys from the Florida Education Association in hopes of coming up with a compromise on the reopening of schools during the crisis. The FEA sued over the order from Education Commissioner Richard Corcoran that required schools to reopen classrooms before the end of the month or face financial penalties. The attorney for the teachers' union, Ron Meyer, told Tallahassee Circuit Judge Charles Dotson that returning to school amid the pandemic is causing many teachers to resign or retire early and give up benefits, while at the same time it's creating massive anxiety for many other staffers in the schools. The schools are operating in a fashion that's unsafe under this executive order, and the executive order is all over the place and is arbitrary and capricious in terms of what it uh, does and doesn't do, how it says in one breath school districts should be given the authority to make these decisions based upon advice from medical authorities, and then in the next breath uh, be told that if you do that, you don't get funding 
even though the commissioner has the broad authority under the emergency order to waive compliance with some of these funding statutes. He wants it both ways. He waived compliance in the spring. He doesn't want to waive compliance in the fall. And he's, he's willing to put the plaintiffs in this case and the children who are attending brick and mortar schools in potential danger just in order to get his way to open schools uh, five days a week. This is not just simply an esoteric uh, question that a disinterested citizen is asking whether uh, the court should uh, adjudicate these issues. These people, uh, as we, we referenced yesterday, uh, ha are leaving their professions. They're uh, being asked to staff brick and mortar schools uh, in conditions which are unsafe. Uh, we, we, can, we can perceive no more direct and immediate harm. And the association standing rights of the Florida Education Association are well demonstrated. Uh, the FEA has the legal right uh, to represent and advance the interests of the 140,000 members of it uh, who are going to have to choose under this arbitrary order either to pursue their careers or uh, and, and sub subject themselves to the danger that's inherent in schools which may be operating unsafely or to leave their career and leave their profession. They shouldn't be in that position, but they clearly have the immediate direct impact and standing to bring this action, Your Honor. The union is not the only plaintiff in this case. The state is also being sued by a group of teachers and parents in Orange County who claim the rush to reopen is a violation of the state constitution. Their attorney is Jacob Stewart. There is a clear and present danger of children and teachers and support staff in our school system that violates Article 9, Section 1A of the, of the Florida Constitution. And the idea that a governor or any uh, executive under the governor's branch can out, act outside of the Constitution and put children and teachers in harm's way due to a pandemic or any reason flies in the face of what a constitutional government means. We are a separate case that was brought forward by a group of concerned uh, parents and teachers. Our client, specifically um, the plaintiff, is in a difficult position of choosing whether or not to pursue her career and provide for her family or risk her health and well-being. Part of what we're looking to do on behalf of all parents throughout the state is for them not to live in fear of what could or could not happen. That's part of this declaratory relief we're seeking for you as the judge to, to order the executive branch that it has to comply with the Constitution providing uh, schools that are safe and harm-free. You know, Mr. Corcoran, just two days ago at the White House, mentioned that he believes by the end of August, I'm sorry, the end of September, that we'll have 80% of schools be full with children. At this point, the current position that we're going into of opening up our schools, whether partially or fully, depending on the county, needs to be uh, in compliance with the Constitution, which it's not. During that White House roundtable Stewart mentioned, Education Commissioner Corcoran said the union bosses who sued the state over the reopening of schools were, quote, absolutely disgraceful. The governor's lawyers asked Judge Dotson to reject the lawsuit on technical grounds without hearing any evidence, but he refused. I'm denying the motion to dismiss. By denying the motion to dismiss, I'm not in any way saying that the plaintiffs are going to be successful with their case. They still have the burden of proving their case, and... Based on the procedural status at this time, I'm denying the motion to dismiss. This is a case that cries out for the parties to 
get together at this mediation and come up with uh, an agreement. It's, it's, a, it's a very complicated case, I know that. And between uh, the governor and the education commissioner and the plaintiffs, I'm confident that if y'all work really hard, you can do that. And I'm, I'm very hopeful that you can. It, it's, it's a case that really needs that very badly. Uh, but in the event that you can't do that, we'll have the hearing Wednesday and Thursday. We'll start at 8.30 on Wednesday morning. The formal mediation effort begins tomorrow, so they have one day to come up with a settlement before the trial starts. So what happens when we get our first reports of coronavirus infections after the schools reopen? Well, some states, including our neighbors to the north in Georgia, have been forced to close some schools all over again after COVID spread through the student body when they reopened. But Governor DeSantis says that is not his plan for Florida. He would rather remove sick kids from the classroom and teach them remotely before choosing to close down an entire school. Well, we, we believe that, that parents deserve a choice. And if, uh, and if a uh, parent uh, believes that distance learning is the right thing, then, then we think the parents should be able to have that choice. These are unusual circumstances. I've said personally as a parent, you know, I'm uh, uh, very, very comforted by the data that shows, um, you know, our kids are very, very low risk, lower risk for this than they are for seasonal influenza. At the same time, um, you know, I think parents need to be able to make that determination. But I also think it would be really bad policy to deny those many other parents the opportunity to resume in-person instruction for their kids because we understand how important it is and not i mean this is obviously just one aspect of it social development academic development all these other things and so you know i think that the school districts and i've been able to talk to a number of superintendents who have um uh, who, who have already started this week and i think they're approaching it very smartly if somebody is on a school bus and, and they're ill then, then you send them home um, and if parents have a, a child that's ill, you keep them home. The good thing about, you know, kind of a, uh, one good thing of having done all the distance learning, even though I don't think it was as good academically, is we are in a situation where, you know, because, be, you know, when I was a kid, if you miss school, you miss school. I mean, that, that may, be, may, may set you back if you miss for a couple days. Well, now we have all this stuff. We were at a school up in Hillsborough County, um, public charter, and they have it being broadcast anyways. And so they're in person, they do all these precautions, but they're in person. Some parents have, have asked for, for, for uh, the distance. And so if you are in person, but you're sick, you stay home, guess what? You don't miss a beat, you're there. So I think that they're very smart about uh, being very forward leaning on um, having folks who um, are symptomatic, uh, staying at home. If someone develops symptoms, you know, removing them from school. But I think doing a more surgical approach like that makes much more sense than just, you know, if some one person's sick, then you shut down the whole school. I don't think that's how uh, a lot of these districts um, are going to approach it. I think it'll be um, on a case by case basis. And the governor continues to insist that school is a safe place for kids, comparing it to reopenings in other countries that have nowhere near as much of a COVID problem as Florida. You know, it's a, it's a difficult time. People, people do have concerns. I will say, though, you know, from an evidence-based approach, if you look at uh, parts of the world that have had schools functioning for a while, um, you know, the school has not proven to be a higher risk environment than other industries that have been operating, you know, the whole time. And so I think that uh, with proper precautions, people, people doing the basic things uh, with an eye towards uh, mitigation, you know, I have no doubt that they can create a safe environment. Just the fact that people are concerned and thinking about it 
is going to reduce the number and the amount of transmission. I mean, a lot of the transmission happens, you know, when, when folks are kind of throwing caution out of the wind. So I know people are, are in those schools are going to be very focused um, on safety. But I think if you look at the experience of, of where this has been done, um, it obviously can be done safely. Um, and I think that I think it, I think it will be done safely. But I do think having the maximum flexibility Look, there's no. We're going to have certain number of parents choose distance, and so if you have a if you have a teacher that has misgivings, you know, I would I've urged the districts, okay, you know, let the teacher do the the distance for for those kids, and you have to juggle some things around. But the maximum flexibility is very important. Um, a, a, a clear attention to safety um, is very important. Uh, but I do think the indicators that we see, you know, are positive. I mean, the 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 the, the movement that we're seeing really all over the state in many respects. Uh, but when you go from a you go to a 70% decline in ED visits for COVID-like illness, when you're looking at a 50% drop in COVID positive patients that are hospitalized. Now, granted, not all those are hospitalized for COVID because they, they test everybody. So some are hospitalized for other things. But but when you see that over just a three-week period, you know, those are those are really, really significant trends. The positivity is lower pretty much everywhere around the state uh, than it was uh, a month ago. And I know there's problems with, with that metric because of some of the reporting issues we've seen. Um, and I do take that into consideration. But I think even considering that, you know, where we were at the beginning of July to where we are now. So I think that you know, Floridians have done a great job. I think that's going, going in a good direction. I, I hope it continues to do that. And then I think that will make um, this, the school year get off to, 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 to a good start. We've had the, the, the districts that have been open now for this week have had, um, you know, have had success. Uh, they obviously are prepared. You know, you have different things that happen and you deal with it. Florida Agriculture Commissioner Nikki Freed gets her 15 minutes of virtual fame at the Democratic National Convention that begins today. The DNC is going with a new format in the keynote address slot. They're offering a public platform to what they call the, quote, powerful and diverse voices for the next generation of party leaders in a unified pledge to step up and lead in this critical moment for the nation. Freed is scheduled to speak sometime between 9 p.m. and 11 Tuesday, the second night of the virtual convention. Tomorrow is primary day in Florida, and there are plenty of interesting races on the ballot, including a rather unique situation in Jacksonville. Reporter A.G. Gankarski is covering that for Florida Politics. Two primaries in Northeast Florida worth watching are the Democratic contest in House Districts 13 and 14. Uh, the incumbents, Representative Tracy Davis in 13 and Kim Daniels in House District 14, are opposed to each other and backing each other's primary challengers. In House District 13, Davis holds a fundraising advantage over Cynthia Smith, her challenger. Uh, but in House District 14, it looks like Angie Nixon has cash parity with Kim Daniels. Nixon's a choice of many Democrats statewide, including Representative Anna Escamani of Orlando. Uh, meanwhile, Daniels is backed by Republicans, including Representative Travis Cummings, uh, Representative Paul Renner, both of them very powerful from Northeast Florida, as well the Florida Chamber and the Associated Industries of Florida back Daniels here. But um, Davis and Daniels want to knock each other out, basically, and that's the stay of the race in Jacksonville. 
The polls open tomorrow, but the primary has actually been underway for a couple of weeks, thanks to early voting and voting by mail. The latest stats from the elections office show more than 500,000 Floridians visited one of the early polling sites across the state, but mail-in voting far more popular. More than 2 million Floridians have already voted that way. There are another 2.2 million Floridians who requested a mail-in ballot but have not returned it yet, and time is running out. So if you're worried about your vote being counted, do not rely on the mail at this point. You can drop the completed ballot in person, or you can just walk in and vote the old-fashioned way. One person not on the ballot this year is Bill Nelson, who served in the Florida House, the U.S. House of Representatives, on the state cabinet, and in the U.S. Senate. He lost his Senate seat to Rick Scott in 2018 by the narrowest of margins. But Nelson came out of retirement to honor the birthday of Social Security and to defend it against attacks from the president. You're listening to the Sunrise Podcast from Florida Politics, and we're much obliged. The Florida Hospital Association has released the OPEN plan, designed to allow Florida's safe resumption of elective surgeries and procedures. OPEN stands for O, observe the COVID-19 rate of community occurrence. P, prevent transmission. E, establish the process to restore elective surgeries and procedures. And N, network with all healthcare providers. You can read the OPEN plan today at FHA.org. Welcome back. Our guest today on the Sunrise Soapbox is former U.S. Senator Bill Nelson, who's been keeping a low profile since losing his Senate race in 2018. But Nelson was back in the public eye Friday as he appeared in a video conference to celebrate the 85th anniversary of the signing of the Social Security Act by FDR. Social Security is one of the most popular programs to come out of Washington, and Nelson says he cannot figure out why the president and his Republican allies are so determined to dismantle the system that keeps so many seniors out of poverty. If there's ever been a contrast between two candidates, I think we have it now. First of all, look how important Social Security is to our state, all of our seniors, and it's uh, those over 65. We're talking about close to 5 million people. And here's the shocking fact. One third of all those seniors on Social Security that's their only source of income. And so when anyone threatens that, uh, we ought to all sit up and take notice. Uh, And we're seeing Donald Trump threaten it day in and day out. Uh, Look what he's doing just in the last week, uh, which has been consistent for the last several months. Trump has said, He wants to eliminate the payroll tax. Oh, this is a tax decrease, a tax cut. But the payroll tax is what funds Social Security. Look at what the Republicans in Congress have done over the last three and a half years. Appropriation after appropriation, uh, wanting to cut Social Security, for example, One such uh, proffered cut was SSDI, Social Security Disability Income. You know, I go all the way back to being in Congress when Social Security came within six months of running out of money. That was 1983. And you talk about bipartisanship. Uh, Two old Irishmen, one Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill, knew they had to come together 
And we passed it overwhelmingly. They took it off the table to beat your opponent over the head with in the next election. And it made Social Security actuarially sound for the next half century. And we still have some time left on that. But we have to be concerned about people chipping away. And that's exactly what is happening now. Uh, you've got a clear, clear uh, choice between two candidates for president. And I'll close with this. Uh, we can't talk about Social Security also without talking about Medicare and Medicaid. And look who is the party that has always stood up for those. I must admit, I've never understood why the age group 65 and older has in general elections for president have generally voted more Republican. But happily, thankfully, that is beginning to change. And I think it's going to be uh, that age group that is so dominant in Florida that is really going to send a resounding message in this November election. Your calendar of events starts today with Senator Randolph Bracey of Orlando taking part in a 10 o'clock news conference at City Hall in Orlando about the COVID-19 problem in the prison system. Experts from Florida International University will take part in an online event at 11 talking about issues related to the reopening of schools during the pandemic. The Seminole State College of Florida Board of Trustees hold an online meeting at 2, and the Tallahassee Community College Board of Trustees meet online at 2.30. Finally, a Florida man was arrested over the weekend after running a red light and crashing into an unmarked patrol car belonging to the Lee County Sheriff's Office. The deputy who was in the vehicle was taken to the hospital with minor injuries. The deputy's canine partner was taken to the vet as a precautionary measure. Both are okay. The driver, 51-year-old man from Naples, was taken to the hospital with minor injuries. He's charged with careless driving, not wearing a seatbelt, DUI, DUI property damage, and DUI personal injury. That's it for today's episode of Sunrise. I'm Rick Flagg, inviting you to join us again tomorrow as we plumb the depths of Florida politics.